Welcome back, everyone. My name is Valentine Mwamba, the editor at TechSim, and uh, today I'm joined yet again by former member of the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe's Monetary Policy Committee, Eddie Cross. Uh, we're following on the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, Eddie, um, when we're talking about just the economy in general. Hi, Eddie. Yeah. Hi, Valentine. It's nice to be with you again. I thoroughly enjoyed the last session. All right. Um, and for this one, you said... Um, well, we wanted to talk about predominantly the 2% tax, but you wanted to broaden it more to start with the elemental components of how a state is financed, tax reform, administration, electronic transactions, uh, you know, uh, collecting revenue or tax through electronic transactions and the informal sector. Yes. Yeah. So, so I guess we'll start from yes. financing a nation, which is one of those questions that people think they know, but they might not necessarily be aware of. Um <clears throat> So can you break it down for me as, as um, have, having been in economics for, you know, eight years, um, from, the, from the government's perspective, what are, or from you, when, when you took the, the, the position at the Monetary Policy Committee, what were, the, what were the things that you walked into the job you saw uh, that existed, you know, as, as you walked in? Right. Well, uh, we were appointed in September tw- 2019, and... Um, and I must say that uh, when that happened, we were facing a situation where the Minister of Finance had just separated the RTGS dollar from the US dollar and had declared that what was in our RTGS accounts was not US dollars. It was electronic dollars. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know what value they represented. In the subsequent two years, those, that mountain of RTGS dollars was devalued by more than, oof, I think it was devalued by more than, more than 90%. And of course, that led to a huge outcry, um, with people saying, you know, essentially they're, 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 they're stealing our money again. And, uh, <clears throat> but the reality was that, uh, the, the currency, in our bank accounts in those days was not U.S. dollars. It was, in fact, um, the electronic currency, as the minister had stated. And the minister didn't have any choice but to allow the market to fix a price. The problem was that there was no market. So the Monetary Policy Committee immediately set about trying to create a market for foreign exchange in the country. And uh, we tried to persuade the banks to pick up that role and run with it and failed. Mainly because the banks didn't want to trade amongst themselves. And also they wanted to maintain their present system of very high <clears throat> rates of commission on each transaction. And so after, uh, I'd say, nine months um, of, uh, of basically getting nowhere, the president stepped into the ring and instructed us to start the auction. And of course, the rest is history. Uh, the auction was, was started on the 23rd of June, 2020. And, uh, <clears throat> it's been running now for, for more than a year. And it's stabilized the exchange rate around about 85 to one. And this, this to me indicated the, the extent of the, to which the foreign currency balances in our personal accounts had to be devalued following the separation of the U.S. dollar from the RTGS dollar. And, of course, the pain has been very, very considerable for all of us. 
But at the same time, we introduced monetary policy which uh, constraints, which meant that we stopped printing money. And that has stabilized the inflation rate and brought it right the way down. So today we have a monthly inflation rate of 4 or 5%, whereas at the time that we were appointed, we were sitting on 850% per annum, which incidentally is still not hyperinflation. Hyperinflation is, is 50% per month. So we're down now to to relatively stable inflation rates and also exchange rates. The problem we face at the moment is that the the bigger bids on the auction are about five to six weeks in arrears on settlement. And uh, <clears throat> this means that we are running two or three weeks behind on uh, on the auction. And I think that's got to be addressed. And that's perhaps is the most important single problem they face at the moment. I'm curious, you, like you said, the uh, conversation we had last week, uh, you uh, continued on the point that the banks were asked to stop the Forex auction. Um, at, at, at that point, just to go back into, into history a little bit, at that point, what was the timeline for the banks to do that before the president then stepped in and said, you know what, let's just do it as, as, as the Reserve Bank? Well, we started talking to the banks uh, in November 2019. And um, I remember going into the Reserve Bank trading room uh, about three months after we had decided on the, on the, uh, so it would have been about March 2020 um, when we, 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 we had the, we had the platform ready. The, the electronics were in place. The Reuters platform, every bank belonged to it. And we then sat in the trading room and, and watched the trades come up. We expected the banks to start trading amongst themselves and nothing happened. So we called the chief executives together with their chairman and said, you know, what are the problems? And, and the international banks said they didn't, didn't feel they could trade with the local banks. Um, CBZ was under sanctions, under Zadera, and uh, and they they they, they said that they, they were nervous about doing that. But I think the underlying reason was that under the Reuters platform through the Reserve Bank, they would get one and a half percent commission, and they were used to commissions of around about five percent, so it would affect their bottom lines. And so they decided that they wouldn't they wouldn't go that route. And nothing we nothing we did to them or said to them changed their minds. So then, three months later, the president stepped in. Okay. And in, in terms of the banks themselves, would you be at liberty to name the banks that said, you know, we're not going to do business with local banks? It was, it was all of them. Yeah. All, all the international banks. I think there were four. Okay. So to this you know, day... Nedbank, <laughs> Nedbank, CBZ, not CBZ, um, Stanbic Bank, uh, you know, Standard Chartered, uh, Echo Bank... These are the international banks, mm. and they so, are the big boys. So why didn't um, why didn't the local banks just do it themselves? Well, they do, but the problem is they're not the big holders of foreign exchange. Mm. The big exporters are banking with the big boys, and the good reason for that: uh, the big boys have 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 uh, contacts internationally, which enable them to move their export proceeds around. Uh, the local banks don't have that. So NMB, for example, local bank, has very, very limited access to foreign exchange. 
So it is it is the, the big banks which, which trade amongst themselves, even trade internally inside the, the bank. So a bank holding big foreign exchange holdings um, in their accounts and, and a, a, a holder of foreign exchange might instruct the bank to sell some foreign exchange. That bank might might go to their own clients in preference to going outside because that way you reinforce your position as a as a as a major bank you make money out of it so i think it i think it's logical i, I i'm not crit, i'm not i'm not criticizing these guys um but it just happened and now we we were forced to go the other route and uh and people now criticize the reserve bank for liquidating you know 40% of export proceeds 20% of nostra balances 20% of foreign currency earnings by government. But that was the only way we could get the market to work. I see. So it's a good thing that the government has stopped printing money uh, for government expenditure. Um, so just to go back to revenue, what has changed in terms of structure of how the how the Second Republic operated in comparison to what the First Republic left? When the Minister of Finance was appointed in July 2018, um, he was faced with a situation where 40% of every dollar spent by government was being printed. And that meant exactly what we, what we inherited, uh, massive inf- overinflated currency and uh, high, infla- high inflation was coming. And um, <clears throat> he knew he had to stop that. So within six weeks, he introduced the electronic uh, transfer tax intermediate monetary tax mm. and uh, the IMM immediately balanced the budget I mean the, the the IMF and the World Bank couldn't believe they, they couldn't believe that he had done that um, and they, they thought he was a witch doctor or something <clears throat> but it was really quite simple um, our economy is very largely run on electronic transactions and he simply put a small tax 2% on those and it balanced the budget Simple. His then problem was to get the value of the local currency down to a realistic level, and then uh, to start and then introduce some really strict uh, fiscal discipline into the whole thing. I mean, before he was appointed, permanent secretaries were able to overspend their their their, their budgets almost without reference to to, to the treasury. Um, what the minister did was to say to uh, permanent secretaries, right, your budget is so much, you'll get allocated this on a, on, a, on a monthly basis. It goes into your bank account. If you overspend, you will be held accountable. And when a couple of permanent secretaries lost their jobs over <clears throat> excess expenditure, they began to realize that he was serious. And that had a really dramatic impact on government, that we had a minister now who was – Bit like Tendai Beatty during the GNU, he was a tough character, and he he and his permanent secretary, uh, the permanent secretary was a banker. He was the chief executive of Barclays Bank. He came across to the team, and the two of them have basically, in, in, basically enforced the discipline on the spending ministries, so that we are actually at the moment running a small fiscal surplus. And it's what we call cash budgeting. You don't spend what you don't have. And he's applied that principle to the overall budget. 
so that at the end of last year we had a small surplus going forward. His budget for this year forecasts a small deficit, but in fact we're running quite a significant surplus. And um, it's how he's going to deal with that, uh, which I think will be fascinating next week when he talks about the midterm budget review. But I think <clears throat> this meant that he, he imposed fiscal discipline on us. The Reserve Bank then also complied with monetary discipline. And the position is today we have much more stability. And it is the stability that is producing confidence and growth. So you mentioned the surplus, and that was something that we remarked uh, earlier on this year when it came out. So it's a great thing that we do have a surplus. Um, but uh, you know, one of the comments the World Bank said that the fis- uh, you know the fiscal discipline exhibited by the government and the Minister of Finance was at the expense of you know uh, you know the the civil servant salaries because there hasn't been any real movement in that. So how are we spending that money? The deficit, the fiscal surplus is a tiny proportion of the national budget. I mean, we're not, we're not talking about, you know, tens of billions of dollars. We're, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm. I think everybody's got to understand that you cannot print money or borrow money and make your people wealthy. Um, you know, go back to 2017 when we had 23,000 million U.S. dollars in our bank accounts. You know, if that was true, we were all individually very, very well off. We were a, we were a middle-income country, but it wasn't true. And and I think what people have to understand, and it's a, it's a harsh reality. I look at I look at the South African uh, crisis in the last month or so, and I see the social commentary and even the media. Uh, berating the government, saying you've got to solve the problem of of youth unemployment. You've got to you've got to solve the problem of poverty. How? With what? Um, you know, Mugabe used to just print money, um, and uh, the result was he destroyed the economy. You can't do that. You've actually got to earn the money. You've actually got to create the wealth, and that's and that's a tough call. So we as a country. <clears throat> we collect about 25% of our gross national product in taxation. Mm. And that's actually quite good. The average for Africa is 18%. And we collect 25. It's the same percentage as South Africa. And South Africa has a relatively good and clean tax system. So it means our tax authorities are actually doing an exceptional job here. And they collect that, they collect that 25% of GDP at a cost of about 7% of all the revenue collected. So the, the, so the minister gets to spend 93% of what they collect. Again, it's a relatively good, good proportion. If you take the OECD countries, the average tax collection in those countries is 35%, substantially more than here. But then you've got a, a huge social <coughs> um, sector there to finance. And uh, we don't have that. The other problem we have here, and South Africa is the same, is that more than half our GDP is informalized and is outside the tax system. So in Zimbabwe, we have 14 million people, but we only have a couple of hundred thousand taxpayers. In South Africa, they have 60, 60, 70 million people, and only 5 million people, 10%, pay tax. But the rest of them, 
are tax spenders, tax receivers, not taxpayers. And, and that is the fundamental problem with, with, with developing countries. And it's, it's, the whole world is like that. So <clears throat> this is not something we can solve in five minutes. This is something that we've got to tackle systematically over time. And I, I keep on saying it's like a football match. You either choose to play the game by the rules or else you don't play the game at all. And if we don't accept the fundamental rules of economics, you know, fiscal discipline, uh, fiscal conservatism, uh, don't spend what you don't earn. And on top of that, don't print money recklessly. Keep your money supply within the limits of, of, of growth. Uh, if you don't play the game by those, then you, you don't get into the game at all. You, you, you're kicked to the sidelines. You can't play, you can't play internationally. We are now playing the game by the rules. And it's been very painful to get back there. But we're seeing the benefits now because we're now seeing real growth. In the first two quarters of this year, uh, fiscal revenues have risen by 13% above budget. Even in real terms, our government is now collecting more money than they projected. The IMF asked, how, the, how was that? And the answer is the basic economy is, is growing. Um, they forecast six, six or seven percent, six percent growth, I think. President, the, the, the minister forecast 7.4, but the reality is our growth is going to be over 10 percent, maybe 12 percent this year. And, uh, it's this growth which is going to start to lift people's incomes and start tackling the problem of poverty. You can't print our way into the future. It's got to work. We've got to work to get there. Definitely. And since you mentioned the IMF and one of the, you know, rules of the game, especially if you're a developing country, is, you know, aid and assistance from the International Monetary Fund. And we're supposedly getting a billion uh, or close to. So in light of all you said, what should we be, what should we be using that money for? Well, I know that ambassadors have been queuing up outside <clears throat> the minister's door and saying, are you going to pay our, ex- our, 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 our bilateral loans back? And the minister's response to that has been an emphatic no. He's not going to spend it. It would be a waste of time spending a billion dollars on our debt anyway. Our national debt is 17 billion. So it would hardly make a dent in our national debt. Mm-hmm. What he's determined to do, and I agree with him 100%, is to strengthen the productive base of the economy. Uh, We're facing a situation right now where if you want to buy a bag of cement, you have to wait um, six weeks or so. If you want to buy a 1,000 or 10,000 bricks to build a home, you're probably in a queue for three months. Um, We're actually short of steel in the country at the moment. I, I, I forecast a situation where if, if current growth levels are maintained, we're going to be short of everything. And the only way to respond to that is not to import the stuff, but to manufacture the stuff. And then we create jobs. And I've, and I've, and I've made the point, I made the point with you the other day that we're creating 10,000 jobs a month. And we've never done that before. And what we've got to do is to make sure that that this this continues. So he's going to spend some of this money 
on strengthening the productive sector in the form of, of loans to companies to re-equip, to expand production, and uh, to <clears throat> to increase a new technology. And I think that uh, that's exactly the right thing to do because that means that we're not spending the money on recurrent expenditure. He's going to have to spend some money on fixing some of our social infrastructure. Um, our hospitals require investment. And I think some of it will go into that. Uh, but, you know, I would not spend it in any way on what should be financed by our own revenues and from our own activities. And that should be financed on a recurrent cost basis. This money should be spent in, in terms of strengthening the, the infrastructure of the country so that we can grow. The Chinese have shown the way. They've shown that if you invest in infrastructure, growth will follow. And we and what we've done in the last 40 years is destroy our infrastructure. You know, when I was a youngster, um, the NRZ was carrying a hundred was doing a hundred trains a day. We now do eight. The NRZ carried 20, 22 million tons of cargo a year. Now we do two, three. You know, and we just we we got to we've got to get those those key institutions. Look at our look look at ele- look at our electricity. Uh, you know, if we don't invest in our electricity production, we will not be able to grow. South Africa will not be able to grow if they don't invest in water. So <clears throat> there are a lot of priorities which are sort of essential to establishing and strengthening our basis for growth. And and as far as the average Zimbabwean is concerned, that is the key priority. It's not servicing our external liabilities. That we'll do later. Like you, you like before the start of the podcast, we were talking about the vaccinations and all that. So obviously um, the question I have here is how are these vaccines being funded or how much has been sunk into them uh, thus far? We put a hundred billion million US dollars into it, and uh, you know when you think I don't know what they're costing. It's costing us. I got a jab the other day. I don't know what it cost. It was the it was the Chinese. I think it was free, um, but the Indian vaccine I think is relatively cheap. It's about twelve dollars. A hundred million US dollars will buy a lot of vaccine. I don't think we've spent that altogether so far. I think we've still got money in in the kitty. That was our own money. That's that's from that's from the foreign exchange balances held by the Ministry of Finance in the Reserve Bank. It's funded with cash. All right. So the one billion we're going to get is obviously the priority. I'm sure, and maybe I might be wrong here, but I think I am not. Is obviously the health healthcare infrastructure is the priority here. Um, probably I think, the fifth. It's one of the priorities. It's one of the priorities. With the pandemic, shouldn't it be mean, the biggest priority? The pandemic, Ugh. you know, I, th- I think we're, we're going to get a lot of assistance internationally. Uh, you know, I think, I think, I think more than half of what we need will be funded by international agencies. And uh, I think we can fund the rest. I don't think we need to draw on, on the SDA, SDRs for that. Hmm. So what, what, okay, besides healthcare, what would be the other priorities for, for this $1 billion or sectors, I should say? I think he's going to put a couple hundred million into uh, into industry. 
I'd be surprised if he doesn't put a couple hundred million into into infrastructure. And he'd, he'd obviously put some money into health, to the health sector. But you've got to realize there's not a lot of money. The, our, our national budget is, is, uh, is five billion. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so it's 20% of our national budget. It's very useful. Mm. Um, we're not good. Last year, by the way, um, the, the Americans denied us the first tranche, which is $850 million. And they were the major shareholders of the IMF. They, they kept, we were one of three countries in the world that didn't get it. That was meant specifically for tackling the problem of, of the pandemic. It meant, to, it meant to help us recover economically. We didn't get that. We're getting it now this year, I think, because uh, basically other countries have essentially insisted on it. And, uh, and, but it's also, it's not a lot of money. We mustn't think it's panacea. It's not going to solve our problems. We need $12, $15 billion if we're going to solve our debt problem. So before we move on from the point of government expenditure, I think it's important to, to highlight that tomorrow the Minister of Finance will be presenting the midterm budget review. Is there anything that you can kind of glean, you know, that you can say that we should expect? No surprises. <clears throat> He's steady as we go. I, th- I think I think we've more or less got the mix right. I would like to I would like to see some changes in taxation, um, because I, I think that some of the taxes we're currently living are very inefficient, and we should replace them with more efficient forms of taxation. Um, I also think that we need to be imaginative. We need to work out systems that will tax our informal sector um, more effectively. We mustn't think that our informal sector is 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 totally impoverished. It's not. There are people in the informal sector which are actually making a lot of money. Interesting. So I, I want to know what more you know uh, efficient ways of taxation because uh, when we look at the infamous two percent tax, um, it, it's an indirect sort of tax. If I'm not mistaken, is is the correct term for it? It's it's a tax of transaction. So how can we make that more efficient? And least burdensome on on the ordinary Zimbabwean who you know there should be a system in place to formalise these businesses. If I'm if I'm not incorrect. Yeah, <clears throat> well, a, a good tax is one which costs you as little as possible to collect. A good tax is one which creates as little <clears throat> resistance as possible <coughs> amongst taxpayers. Mm. And uh, <coughs> and at the same time. It generates sufficient resources for the government to actually do what it's intended to do. So, you know, what, if you if you that? just look at look at the demands made on government, we have four million children in school. Government, the whole government allocation if for education is only about thirty dollars a head. So, <clears throat> obviously. You can't finance an education system with $30 per month per head. It's just totally inadequate. <clears throat> um, so it's, we, we can't fund. It was one of the arguments for, for the, for example, for the, for the development, the, the millennium goals, which were adopted about 10 years ago, where the international community committed itself to putting every child in developing countries into primary school and giving every 
family in, in, in the developing world a reasonable access to health health services. It just isn't happening. And, and, and it's proved to be just simply beyond us financially and physically. So what does a good tax in Zimbabwe constitute? I would, I would argue that the VAT tax is a very efficient tax. It's more or less self-administered. It's, uh, it comes in fast. It comes in every 30 days. It is, it is uh, spread across the entire economy or everybody pays it. And uh, even the informal sector pays it. <clears throat> and it constitutes about 20% of our national budget. It's one of the biggest single items. I'm not so sure about company tax. Corporate tax to me um, is a difficult tax to collect because you've got to actually have accountants, you've got to have sets of accounts, quarterly returns. It actually costs the private sector, the business community, a massive amount of money um, to, 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 to achieve that and to, and to be able to fill in the tax returns required. And I personally think that much less emphasis should be placed on that. Mm. I also think that taxing people, especially people at the bottom of the pile, you know, I, I wouldn't tax an RTGS income below $15,000. I'd make it tax-free because somebody earning $15,000, you know, that's, that's $1,000 a month. They're really, they're really, that's that's below the poverty line um, for in the United States, and I would say people earning that sort of money should should basically be tax free. Um, but once you get beyond that, I think that we've got to recognise that the economy is actually changing dramatically. Um, in Zimbabwe today, in twelve months, the last twelve months, ending thirtieth of June. We used our credit, our cards, our plastic cards for one trillion dollars of transactions. And, and this means that, you know, the, the electronic transfers are, are really the dominant means of, of trade. Now you go back, don't have to go back very far. Go back 10 years ago. We still banked cash. In banks, I don't, we don't do that anymore. Um, we still had debtors and creditors. You don't have debtors anymore. Uh, people pay cash. You put your card in, deal is done. The money's in your bank. Finish. Um, and I can see, and I, and I can see a cashless society is coming. You're already in the States. In the States, you, it's a cashless society. And, We've still got a way to go in Africa, but our systems are actually quite sophisticated, probably more sophisticated than many developed countries because cash has been such a problem. And I think what we've got to look at increasingly, I, when I, when I first broached the subject of a tax on monetary transfers with the minister, my recommendation was 5%. And I recommend at the same time that he, 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 he cut PAYE by half. So people earning low salaries don't pay PAYE at all. 
And I suggested he do away with company tax completely. Company so you don't have to. So you, so you don't have company tax. So you don't have to worry about submitting your accounts to Zimra. You don't have to worry about a Zimra audit. Uh, you, you know, you wouldn't get this militancy between Zimra and, and companies. I mean, it's a nightmare for many companies. You get Zimra coming in, and if they're not satisfied with what you're doing, you can face a huge tax tax bill retrospectively. And and some of the things are just ridiculous. And I, I said, you replace it with a single tax on electric. He, he opted to go for 2%, which is still quite a big tax. And, uh, and not to go and, and did not change the other tax systems. If I look at the worst examples of taxation, they are things like the toll gates. It costs us f- over 40% to collect the toll at the toll gates. Now, if, if you, if you, if you're going to raise, t- and, and, and the tolls are taxes, eh? They're not, they're not anything else. They're just a tax. And if a tax costs you 40% to collect, it's not worth collecting. It's just a damn nuisance. And I would put in the same category, um, NASA. You know, we, 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 we pay into NASA, all of us. Um, and in the past 25 years, NASA has, has probably handled round about 12, 14 billion US dollars in revenues. Only $2 billion remains out of that. The rest has been lost. And, and it's, you can see the country is littered with bad decisions by, by NASA. The hospital in Bulawayo has never been opened. The hotel in Bight Bridge. You know, you go around the country in these rural, rural shopping centers and you'll find these huge malls built by NASA in the wrong places without, the, without the requisite, you know, financial performance. And that's people's money. That is tax money. And I, I would, I would, I would, like the Germans, the Germans don't allow their social agencies like NASA to invest money because it becomes, it becomes a, a honeypot. The minister sits on top of it. If he wants something done, he just phones the chief executive of NASA and it becomes a honeypot. And I would say the same thing for the, for the AIDS levy. Um, I could say the same thing with financing <clears throat> Emma using, using fines. And, you know, these, these mechanisms, which all need review and examine because they're all forms of taxation. If you pay a fine to Emma, it is a tax. And uh, it may be related to what you're actually doing at your company or so on. But in many cases, I mean, you can, you can find cause for a fine in almost every business in Zimbabwe and certainly every mine. And the problem with that too is it creates opportunities for corruption. If you face with a fine of $5,000 a month with the, and you're running a gold mine, what do you do? You pay the inspector $1,000 and you get back to work. You know, that's what's happening across the country. And then it becomes a direct cost on the rest of us uh, without any production 
without any benefit, social benefit, at least if you've got an efficient tax and you're raising money and you're spending it on teachers' salaries or on, on prison or medical services or building roads, then at least we're getting something back. Uh, but if you're, if you look at Zanara, Zanara by law is only supposed to spend 7% of its gross turnover on administration. It spends nearly 30%. So you hear stories of hairstyles, you know, woman going out from Zanara, woman, woman workers going out from Zanara and spending a hundred dollars paid by the company on, on a, on a haircut. You look at the, just look at the look at the parking lots of all of these quasi-government organisations. They're full of expensive vehicles, and uh, but the productivity, the output, the real output, is negligible. I mean, oh, I could I could go on and on and on, um, but I do think that, I do think that if I was Minister of Finance. And I know the minister is in favour of this. He, he faces political opposition from his own party, from the party. If I was Minister of Finance, I, I would be moving in that direction because I think the benefits would be enormous. And and what does it cost to collect the 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 the, the trans- transaction tax? Nothing, nothing. It's a change to a computer system, and the money is delivered to the treasury every twenty four hours. It's the most efficient tax in the world. And that's where we've got to go. Eventually, eventually what, I would, what I would do is I'd replace, I'd replace all taxes with the transaction tax. All of them. So is, is, is the transaction tax akin to uh, what we have right now with the 2% tax? Like the, is the vision that you have of it close to what we have now? Yeah, 2% is not yielding a lot of money because of all the exemptions. I think I looked at the last the last figures. It was around about ten percent of the total revenues of government. I mean, in the means of collection, is it in doing it as 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 you'd like it to, or as you expect yeah. it to, as an economist? Yeah, it's very efficient, extremely efficient, mm. and uh, you know, I'd like to see it audited very carefully because I think oh. there's a lot of people ducking and diving. But in the main. In the main, if you, if you, the 2% tax is being applied and it's being applied by computers without government, without, without any human intervention. It's interesting because, uh, over the last couple of months, the most recent bank was EcoBank, which put out a statement saying it would be doing a, it'll be backdating uh, the 2% tax collection from its customers. We saw the same from FBC. We saw the same from Standard Chartered Bank. So I, I'm not sure what it is on the bank's level individually, but it doesn't seem to be as seamless as, as you say it is. Well, if that is the case, it means that they did not change their computer systems when the tax was introduced. That's their fault. <clears throat> and if they've got to now go back to their clients, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in, in retrogress, ret- retrospective uh, tax collection. I think they should have written it off, either written it off or else asked for government to, to, to uh, give them a leeway. But it, it it simply means they weren't doing their jobs properly. Mm. So earlier on, you mentioned um, that we're going into a cashless society or close to, or we were close to that. I think it was between 2012 and 2017 when everyone was pretty much on eco-cash or, or, or um, using their bank card. So does it make sense to, to, to print more money, to print more cash cash? Because like we spoke last no. week, the dollar, 
it's great, but unfortunately, you 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 can't totally you can't totally. I mean, we we you can't totally uh, ignore cash. Um, you know, the the one of the biggest businesses in the United States <clears throat> is printing cash. They print they print U.S. dollars at about four locations around the world, and about seventy percent of all the cash in the world is is U.S. dollars. Mm. Uh, it is the primary means of of transactions in in the criminal world, but it is a business for the United States. I mean, it, it's, it's, if you got ever got the chance of of um, printing currency for somebody, you know. <clears throat> And your own, at your own benefit. I mean, what, what, do, what does a, what does this $50, $50 bill cost us? We, we printed some idea. I'll give you some idea. Well, I think we printed about 700,000 notes. It's about $3 billion. And it cost us about two, two and a half million US dollars. So the cost per note is tiny. But when you put it into circulation, it's got a much bigger value. And that's where, the, that, that is why in the United States, uh, the, 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 the treasury there the, 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 is, is one of the biggest profit, profit centers of the U.S. government because they make huge profits. South African Reserve Bank, the same. They make big profits from printing rand. Uh, we would make, we would make money. Uh, we, uh, it strength, this, this printing currency strengthens our reserve banks balance sheet immeasurably. Um, but but eventually, I think we're going to get to the point where it's tap and go, um, you know. And and look at Kenya. Kenya's far, further down the road. We need more competition in this area. Econet is simply too big now. It's simply too big and too dominant. It's a it's a virtual monopoly, and uh, we need a, a big player. We should sell Net One to to a big international player, and that would then spark the the uh, the technical technical changes that are needed uh, to really create the situation where we could operate without cash, but at the moment that's not true. Curious as to you know uh, you said sell uh, net one and I think the government has some stake in Telesel as well, um, so that would probably would make e money uh, more viable because of competition. But on on an economic and you know uh, policy perspective, you last week you said that the hundred and the two hundred will be coming soon. Shouldn't we now be focusing on more efficient ways of using e money, like trying to move away from cash? Because in the in our context, we're not the United States of America or Zimbabwe. I don't think we can see the viability of, of of printing money as a business. I think we have to do what's in our means. So is are we? No are argument. Not, should no, we not no argument. Methods no argument. No argument. None at all. But. But you must remember that when you when you create an electronic system for financial transactions, as we have done across the world, you create the opportunity to print money on a scale that's never been seen before in history. No paper, just a button. And that's huge. That requires real discipline. And that's where I think you look at a country like 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 Germany stands stands out because in Germany they have entrenched in their law that printing money is 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 not legal, and if the governor of the Reserve Bank, the of the Bank of of Germany, if does that, uh, he's he's fired. I mean, it's a it's a criminal offence, and I think I think what other countries are doing today. 
in what they call monetary easing, uh, the United States printing billions and billions of dollars. And the U.S. dollar has depreciated by 25% in the last year. And that's entirely due to printing money. And uh, <clears throat> what everybody recognizes when they look at the U.S., they think the U.S. is highly indebted, but it's indebted in U.S. dollars to themselves. So, uh, and inflation has not, has not, has not really accelerated in the States. It picked up a bit just recently, but it's still not a serious problem. So I, I think that, uh, it has its, it has its dangers, but I think as far as I'm concerned, it is the way to go. Let's, let's get towards a cash, let's get to a cashless society as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. And let's, uh, let our tax systems follow that route. You know, that's what, what, what worries me is that our tax systems are archaic. True. I'm, I'm not curious about, you know, moving to a cashless society. And when you're part of the Monetary Policy Committee, um, in, in your time there, we saw uh, mobile money, EcoCash. And I know you've, you've mentioned that Econet Cassava is, is, is a behemoth near monopoly now, or even monopoly, um, in effect. But we saw the limits being put on mobile money, the restrict, uh, transaction restrictions. Isn't that counterintuitive yeah. of the direction of a cashless society? Because no, no, no. We can't what, get they, what, what they were doing was breaking every rule in the game. The which one? They were allowing their agents. They have seventy-five thousand agents. Just absorb that number: seventy-five thousand registered agents. And these guys <clears throat> were allowed to buy foreign exchange in return for an electronic transfer in RTGS on their phones. So you you could get a prime location in a Chisipede shopping center, for example, and and people would be or standing outside a, a money a money transfer agency or standing outside the tobacco auction floors, anywhere where US dollars are being transacted and a farmer would come out of the auction floor with 200 US dollars or 300 US dollars in his hands and he would face 20 agents saying, please, come on, sell them to me. And these agents were not, we're told, go out and buy foreign exchange. And they were buying foreign exchange without any regard to the rate. So they were driving up the rate. And one one of these traders that we caught had a massive overdraft on his phone, which he cleared at the end of the day when he banked his U.S. dollars. But it meant that we had no control over the exchange rate. It was these guys that were fixing the exchange rate. And who was buying the cash? It was the smugglers. It was the gold buyers, the gold dealers. It was the guys buying diamonds in Marenki. Anybody who needed cash for transactions, it was cattle traders. You can't, in many parts of the country, you can't buy cattle for RTGS. You have to use hard currency, either RAND or, or USD. And so these guys didn't give a damn about what, what price they were paid. They needed the cash. And the problem is that Econet was facilitating that. So we simply said to them, Get your house in order. Stop doing this 
and and then we'll we'll let you go. They they initially refused because it was such a big part. They did three point seven billion dollars U.S. dollars in February February twenty twenty. Hmm. And, um, you know, we said, you know, this is completely distorting the whole monetary situation. If you create money on that scale, 75,000 people buying on credit, you know, without any, without any collateral, you know, this, this violated all banking rules. And when Econet refused to do that, we threatened, we threatened them. And uh, they eventually buckled under and the problem was dealt with. And we, we, we now, I hope, are more or less back to normal. But we had to bring that under control. Now, <clears throat> that's a peculiarity of Zimbabwe. Uh, it doesn't happen in other countries where there's a normal market for foreign exchange. But here it happened, and we had to correct it. And it's been done. Mm. Curiously, you mentioned uh, EcoCash overdraft. I've been using EcoCash for I, near on probably seven years now. And something like an overdraft was not possible, or I didn't know it was possible. Is it was even it actually offering credit? If you're a, if you're a trader, if you're a trader, you're buying foreign exchange. So you can you facilitate can buy, it. Yes, that's right. You can facilitate that. So you could they could go into the marketplace and buy foreign exchange and do a transfer on their phones. In so stand outside the auction floor. A farmer comes out, he says, here's a hundred dollars. What rate are you going to give me? Now there's 20 of them standing in a row. They're all shouting different rates. You choose the highest rate. You do a deal. You know exactly what happens. The money appears on your phone. You hand over the US dollar. In the evening, the trader goes in and cashes in his money. Mm. So, so even it itself had its own traders, like people who were doing this actively. Yes. 75,000 of them. 75,000 of them. It was a great way to make a living. These guys were getting a 5% margin. They were making thousands of dollars. Income. It's one of the major major sources of of income in the informal sector. You didn't need any capital. You needed a cell phone. Interesting. So I remember reading, well, through the Cassava Econet story um that there was an investigation that was done uh by the reserve bank i think the financial intelligence unit fiu on eager cash uh forgive my ignorance but i have not seen a report on the findings of that of that investigation maybe that could help shed light on you know if econet was or eager cash sorry was actually using uh agents uh any sort of paper trail that could have led us to um uh to you know something substantial on on, on the matter yeah, you know, a lot of this information which the FIU comes up with is <clears throat> very, very confidential. Um, and, um, they have their, I think the Reserve Bank is cautious about releasing this kind of information because it is commercially damaging. But, uh, but in this particular case, of course, it, it, it became a court case. We, you know, we, 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 we would have taken, I think eventually, the principals in Econet uh, stepped into the ring and stopped the fight. Um, but the Monetary Policy Committee and the Reserve Bank, we were ready to go all the way um, on, on this issue. And uh, <clears throat> but it was action taken by the by, by the principals 
that eventually we said, well, that's, that providing you're going to rectify this, we're quite happy. Because Econet is too important to us as a country. It's become vitally important to us. And they do a great job. I mean, without them, God, we'd be in, we'd be in dire straits. Um, but they need more competition and they need private sector competition. And I don't know why we're not doing something about that. Mm. I'm, I'm just curious as to why the information wasn't made public. I know, th- you know, whatever deal was, was agreed between the, the, the officials is, is something else, but this is something that was of great public interest for something like this to come out. Um, even it itself could have gotten a slap on the wrist because they are an ancillary, ancillary service now. Um, they're the back, one of the backbones of the financial sector, but that information is critical for people to know yes. that this was going on. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> that's the difference between being someone who has power and someone who has influence. <laughs> <laughs> but how can you hope then to compete with it? Um, if, 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 you know, you know, on a private sector level, we can compete with them now. Believe me, there's plenty of room for competition. If the, if one of the big boys, if MTN came in here, um, it's got to be a big boy. It's got to be one of the big guys. Um, and if they came in here, first of all, they would pay, pay a mountain of money for a license. Um, mm. and probably more than we're getting from the IMF. And, uh, and, <clears throat> and they would very quickly establish themselves as a, as a, as a principal player. It would also drive down, drive down commissions and, and charges. I mean, we must have the most expensive electronic transfer system in the world. Um, we talk about the 2% tax as if it was the end of the world, but in fact, Econet is taking much more than that. That's the 2% tax on that on every transaction, which just makes it worse. Staying on to mobile money, I wanted yes. to ask about the limits. Um, they were set, was it September last year? The Well, the first it was yeah. the 5,000 limit, then reviewed to 35,000 a week, uh, still 5,000 a transaction. So the problem is, is now the bread basket of, of the, 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 sorry, the bread basket needed by a household, or the budget for a household is, is continually increasing. I think it was in April when, um, when, um, uh, Zimstat said it increased, I think, upwards of 24,000. So since Econet is such an important company, EcoCash, sorry, is such an important company, um, and people rely on it because of the very relatively low barrier to entry it gives to financial services, when will that be reviewed? Because it, it's, it's constraining households. Imagine at the end of the month, you get paid, well, however much you get paid, and you need to make a, a mass amount of transactions. Um, and you can you are limited to that thirty five thousand and kids going to school etc. I'm sure you know what the situation is like. Yeah, uh, all too well. I, I think that the limits should be revised. I, I would be much more in favour of opening up the market and then letting the limits run. Just let them let the market sort it out. Um, I know you can get exemptions. I know the cotton <coughs> the cotton the cot cotco is have has an exemption to pay its producers. I think the GMB likewise. Um, so that we can use electronic transfers uh, for paying farmers. And the Kotka has 400,000 odd farmers who, who rely on them. But I think the answer is to, to look to a more efficient market. It's, it's like, it's like the auction. The answer to the problems that we're experiencing on the auction is just a more efficient market, more efficient market mechanism. I mean, look at Zambia, look at Mozambique, look at, look at, look at Botswana. All our neighbors have got a very efficient 
foreign exchange market and, and without any real ructions or, or disruptions. And that's where we've got to go. But how we get from where we were to where we want to be is transition. And it's managing the transition uh, that, that's, that's critical. Because you can't, if you screw it up, then, then you, you can do real damage. Hmm. I'm curious as to, to when you mentioned transition as it's, it's an important thing to go from one state of being to another and the bit in the middle is the important part, how little affects you on the other side and the transition from no, no mobile money limit or very relatively good ones to very strict ones was very abrupt. I think it was in the space of a couple of months. Um, yes. So when can we hope for something that can react to the, to the, to the imminent need that is in Zimbabwe right now to open up those limits? I don't know. I don't know. I would imagine that it's, 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 it comes up at the Monetary Policy Committee every month, but I'm not sure exactly what they're doing about it or even what their thoughts are. But it's been nearly a year now. Um, would, you I know. know. I, I speak to a lot of people who, who say the people at the top are very out of touch with what's going on on the ground. This should be something very high on the agenda. I agree. I agree. I'm, I'm really surprised that it's not being attended to. Because I really think it, it it is a it is a very important issue. And I wanted to touch on on um, on on um, cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. Uh, you you mentioned last week that you were you were you were saying it, it's coming, it's the future. Um, but I'm curious to know um, in terms of revenue collection and taxes, I was, I was speaking to a financial services lawyer last week, Prosper Mwedzi, and he said it could make it a, a lot easier for the government to collect stuff like the, the, the transaction tax that you mentioned earlier if a, a blockchain system was or was put, put into Zimbabwe's uh, financial system. So do you see the feasibility of that happening since you've dealt with these characters who are now um, in office uh, well, in, 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 in the positions uh, at the MPC that you were? Uh, do you think that this is something they would seriously consider or it's we're still far away. I, th- I I think blockchain transactions internationally are imminent. I think the resistance is coming from those elements in our society in in the in the global community who basically fear the loss of control, and also perhaps even fear the the freedoms that it would give to people. Um, and, uh, you know, leading the pack is the United States, um, who don't want this in any shape or form. They want to maintain their dominance of uh, the international transaction world. They want to maintain the SWIFT system. But quite frankly, um, I think it's coming. And I think ultimately it'll make all of these controls irrelevant. I agree with your friend, um, that I think any move towards uh, electronic transactions will improve revenue collection across the world. But it will also result in a loss of revenue in many parts of the world where people want to move their currency away from one particular economic system to another. And that's going to be a problem. So if you come back to the rules-based economic situation that we're in, if you then don't play totally by the rules and you're not recognized and people don't have confidence in you, then the flight of capital could be actually much more substantial 
than it is at the moment. At the moment, there are so many constraints on capital movements um, that uh, it's very difficult to move money around the world. But it would mean, I think, that those countries that have got the mix right would become very wealthy. And those countries which don't have the right mix of policies would be punished quite severely. And I, I think that's what's going to retard the, process, the, the progress in this area. It's not going to be the desirability of the system at all. It's going to be the, the problems it's going to create for those countries that do not play by the play, play by the ball. In Zimbabwe, take a lead in that. I know it's 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 kind of silly to say Zimbabwe taking the lead in anything because we've been the tail end of, of of most things. But shouldn't we be looking at crafting policy that can um, that can accommodate? An example is this: last week, I saw something on social media that the Securities Exchange Commission of Zimbabwe was going to you know amend the Securities Act to include virtual assets. Now, obviously, I reached out. Well, we reached out to the SEC, and they couldn't give us any information. They said uh, all of that is being held or uh, being done by the Ministry of Finance. So are we closer with this amendment to the Securities Act to us finally getting some sort of, you know, legal framework or policy definition of cryptocurrency and blockchain technology? I was in a meeting at the Ministry of Finance about a year ago where this was discussed with the Permanent Secretary. And he expressed strong support for some form of adoption of cryptocurrencies in national transactions. Um, it, It was really a question of, technical technical constraints and and also the international framework um, for these transactions and I think this is receiving attention I think the 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 blockchain yuan is coming I, I would be very surprised if we don't see countries in the Middle East um, adopting blockchain transactions I would not be surprised at all to start seeing international commodity markets um, also swinging to, 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 to blockchain systems because it makes everything so much simpler, cheaper, and easier. But what it does do is it, 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 it's, it lifts the controls that so many of these institutions and systems have um, and which they use both to generate revenues for themselves and also to ensure that the, the system's not abused in some way. I mean, look, look for example, at, at the way in which the government here had to take action against the fungible stocks and shares on the on the on the local stock market, PPC, uh, Seedco, Old Mutual, yeah. and I don't know who the last one was. There were four, and because people were buying the stocks here and then selling them abroad. And the difference between the local stock price and the international stock price was regarded as being a real indication of the value of the Zimbabwe dollar. And uh, it was used to compel to calculate inflation rates and all sorts of things. It became almost a, almost a, a, a separate exchange rate um, on its own. And the minister eventually simply had to stop making it convertible. Um, and they've now moved, moving, I hope, to the, to the, to the Victoria Falls stock market where you can trade in US dollars and only in US dollars. Um, but, uh, those are the kind of problems with, which any blockchain system will automatically create 
and uh, and and the problem is that nobody can control that. Nobody can manage it. It's, it's has, has a life of its own. Look at Bitcoin. You know, it's got a complete life of its own. It it, it moves in completely unpredictable ways. The exchange rate against it is totally unpredictable. It's not based on any fundamentals. It's a global Ponzi scheme. <laughs> uh, if, if, if my friend Prosper was here, I think you'd have an interesting debate with him. But he mentioned something in a conversation I had with him last week. Um, he said that central banks around the world are now moving towards central bank stable coins. So these are actually backed by something. Um, they're not as volatile as, as what we've seen with, with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And the Reserve Bank... Um, has kind of been resistant even to including cryptocurrency uh, and exchange cryptocurrency uh, startups and exchanges into its fintech sandbox. Um, so I, I don't think the right way to do it is to, to and this is just me uh, again. I want your view on this, but I don't think the right way to go about this is to kind of sidestep cryptos uh, entirely. I think it's to look at the alternatives that are available out there that we can adaptively use in our own context, similar to what you know what made EcoCash EcoCash. We saw a need we could use it for. It was in the market. We tried it. We tested it, and it's now you know a pillar. So why can't we do the same with cryptos? Yeah, I think we can. Just requires using our brains and uh, and behaving responsibly. But that's both of those things are rather unusual attributes. <laughs> Very unusual. I wanted to run yeah. off on, on the on the following question, um, and it, it's kind of one that that's you know one that many of us have been wondering is why there's been so little funding for modernizing government technology. A good example of this is the registrar's office. It's it's still very antiquated in the way that things are being done. Any sort of government process is not done online. Some are coming online, like most recently paying your TV license and radio license. But the ones like passports and whatnot in other countries, you, you it's, it's relatively seamless. But in Zimbabwe, it seems like we are 10 steps behind technology-wise. I couldn't agree with more. I mean, my my son had a problem with his local citizenship at one time and uh, for a variety of reasons. Well, we all know the reasons. And he discovered that he was eligible because his grandfather, his great-grandfather was Irish. He was eligible for Irish citizenship. So he contacted the Irish embassy. A form arrived um, electronically. He filled it in, scanned it, sent it back. And 14 days later, passport arrived. You know, um, I know that, that that's 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 not 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 normal in time. But here in Zimbabwe, you, getting a passport is a is a nightmare. Yeah. And I think and I think I think a lot of that is contrived. Um, you know, you go to arrive at the border post at Bide Bridge, and there are a dozen guys outside the border post saying, uh, "Please let me do your clearance for you." I'll charge you $200 and uh, you won't have to get out of your car. You just simply wait. I'll bring the documents back to you and then you can proceed. And, uh, and you know, if you go in and you actually try and do the process yourself, you face real resistance inside there. And that's corruption because these, these guys on the outside on the, on the pavement are sharing the, the, what they what they're collecting from these these guys with the guys inside, mm. so they don't want electronic systems. They don't want uh, you know seamless processes, and it's the same with the registrar general's office. 
The Registrar General's Office is a nightmare from A to Z, whether it's, <clears throat> whether it's, uh, it's uh, kids getting, you know, a, a child when she's born should get an, should get an ID number. When they get to 16 or 18, they should get it in the post. It should be sent to them. All this nonsense that we've got to go through the loops and so on and, and the payments you've got to make. You know, it's just incredible. But it's the same with everything. Getting a driver's license. It's the same. It's the same. And, uh, you know, that's just <clears throat> um, government. It's management of, 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 of national government. And I, I agree with you completely. The, the sooner we completely, um, you know, certainly Bybridge Border Post that's being done now, it's being completely redone. It's going to be electronic from A to Z. That's going to be very interesting to watch. Yeah. Um, um, because I, you know, the, 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 the days, the weeks that people spend at Bridge trying to do clear things and so on is, is hugely expensive for us as a country. Mm. And it should, it should be like, you know, traveling between France and Switzerland. Seamless. Seamless. Yeah. No, no hassles at all. And does it mean that there's any less control? No, yeah. it doesn't. Yeah. No, it doesn't at all. But it's just elsewhere. Eddie, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it was a pleasure, as, as, as was the last time. Pleasure, Valentine. Take care. You too. And to our audience, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you back very, very soon.